Morena and welcome to the final dawn chorus of the week. I'm Bernard Hickey for the Kaka. This is my daily podcast that goes out with my email newsletter for paying subscribers on the Kaka, which is my Substack. I tend to follow the uh, global economy, geopolitics, our own local political economy in Aotearoa through the lens of what it means for housing affordability, climate change, inaction and child poverty reduction. In New Zealand we've got this housing market, the most expensive in the world, that has in many ways become our economy. I have this saying, you've probably heard it, we have a housing market with bits tacked on, not a real economy. In the last day or so we've started to see some of the inevitable results of building up this economy, not just in terms of expensive housing, our inability to deal with climate change, our ongoing struggles to reduce child poverty, but also in the way in which our monetary policy is run and the redistributive effects of how that monetary policy is run. Let's step back a couple of years to the beginning of COVID when the Reserve Bank and the government threw all sorts of kitchen sinks at the economy in March of 2020 to soften the blow of shutting down our economy to stop the spread of COVID. It was an extraordinary time when we didn't know what was going to happen next and we feared the worst. Very, very high unemployment, a collapse in asset values, a complete implosion of our economy, not to mention the implosion of the global economy. So the Reserve Bank slashed interest rates to zero, announced over the coming months the printing of up to $100 billion of money to buy government bonds to lower longer term interest rates, which in turn was designed to lower fixed mortgage rates. Meanwhile, the government announced and spent over $20 billion on wage subsidies and various resurgence payments which went to business owners. No one could have expected, I think, how effective all of that money printing and money spending, pumping into the economy would be in softening that blow. To be fair, other governments were also doing similar things, although we were doing it at the upper end of the scale in terms of how big it was relative to GDP and how effective it was and how quickly we did it. The Reserve Bank not ju it didn't just throw the kitchen sink, it uh, pretty much rearranged the kitchen. In those first few months, it removed, in particular, the restrictions on low deposit lending, which the banks saw as an opportunity to grow lending, and that was the aim. A surging housing market was not an accident in this scenario. It wasn't the bug. It was the feature of the Reserve Bank's attempts to get our economy going again. It knows too that we don't have a real economy, we have a housing market with bits tacked on. That means if you want to get your economy going, target the housing market. Ensure that you get a wealth effect. 
remember that for every dollar of increasing household wealth, the Reserve Bank estimates it, it passes through into an increase in spending of an extra three cents. And we certainly saw that through late 2020 and through 2021. And we weren't the only place to see surging asset prices after central banks printed money and slashed interest rates, but ours were the most aggressive. Our house prices rose more than any other country in the world. They rose 45%. They added, along with rising share prices, close to a trillion dollars in net worth to those people who own homes and other assets in that period. Effectively, the Reserve Bank and the government, which approved the money printing and the removal of the LVRs, effectively decided to make already wealthy people much, much wealthier to rescue the economy. And it worked spectacularly well. In fact, too well. Now, this isn't uh, unique to New Zealand. Other countries and central banks had the same sort of issue. But this is the first time that we'd ever used some of these tools, like money printing, quantitative easing, where a central bank invents money to buy government bonds to push down interest rates. Japan's been doing it for 20 years, and the US Federal Reserve has been doing it since 2008-9. The European Central Bank too. So we're not alone in this, but the scale of it uh, and the speed of it had an enormous effect. In fact, along with all that money printing that went on overseas, along with the restrictions on supply chains and on labour supply in global markets, the war in Ukraine, all of that combined to set on fire the huge piles of paper that have been built up by central banks over the last 10 to 20 years of money printing. After so many years of flicking the lighter scratching the flint and trying to get the fire started. They really got the fire started. And now central banks are trying to put the fire out. To be fair to the Reserve Bank, it moved before other central banks. In the middle of last year, it stopped money printing, a good six to 12 months before everyone else. It then put up the official cash rate in October of last year and reimposed and tightened the LVR restrictions, stopping that lending growth in its tracks. And of course, we've seen house prices fall from a peak, not surprisingly, at the same time of October last year, October, November, of around about 10 to 15% across the country. And in some of the bleeding edge markets, in particular Auckland and Wellington City, you've already seen prices down 15 to 20%. The Reserve Bank thinks by the end of this, there will have been a peak to trough fall in house prices of about 20%. So these asset values are unwinding somewhat, but not fully. And the 45% increase since February 2020, about half of that will be retained, at least in nominal terms. You could argue that relative to wages, house prices will be back to where they were pre-COVID if we do see something like a 20% fall in prices on top of a couple of years of inflation of 4 or 6, 
and that is uh, going to unwind some of the damage or the benefits depending on which side of the equation you are on. But it means that the Reserve Bank is having to tighten very fast and hard to in effect unwind some of its mistakes. So who should pay the price for this mistake? Who has benefited? How could we ensure that in fixing the mistakes of 20 and 2021, we don't repeat the pain for those who are hit hardest? Remember those people who didn't own assets, particularly those who are renters, not only missed out on all the free money pumped into asset values, but they also had to pay the price of higher prices for food, for transport, and all sorts of other things. And remember, people on low incomes, particularly renters, spend almost all, sometimes more than all, of their income. So whenever there's a change in prices, which removes any spare buffer of disposable income, it hurts relatively more than for those people who save a lot of their income and who have assets and other buffers to go back on when there is price rises or inflation that's more than wage inflation. We've also seen that those people at the lower end and most precarious end of the work spectrum were hit hardest during those lockdowns in 2020 and in 2021, even though we now have unemployment of 3.2%, there is still plenty of pain out there, there for those who lost work, particularly those who are younger, less experienced, less connected in the labour market, and those who of course rent and have had to deal with rent increases that are at least as fast as income growth, if not more, at, in many places and at various times in the last two and a half years. So, who were the winners? Who were the losers? Well, we got some news. I got round to it in the end. We've got some news from the last couple of days that I thought was worth highlighting and uh, putting together in terms of showing the benefits, the winners and the losers of the COVID monetary policy and fiscal policy response and whether the same mistakes will be made again in trying to rectify the errors of 2020. It's worth knowing that whenever a central bank puts up interest rates, there is a natural effect on bank profits. Net interest margins tend to rise, and because banks make more money when interest rates rise and they don't necessarily pass them on equally to borrowers and to savers, there's clearly a tailwind for bank profits when monetary policy is tightened. That's clear in the academic research from what we've seen overseas, and it's very clear from the last two and a half years of profit results, of which you can see a lot more detail in the email that I've connected up with this podcast. ANZ, our biggest bank, reported its annual results on Thursday, showing a 20% increase in its cash profits to $2.3 billion. Now that's because it increased its profit margins from net interest income, and because over the last two and a half years, it has simply increased its, the size of its balance sheet. And when I say balance sheet, it's loans to people, mortgage loans. 
In effect, the Reserve Bank ordered, suggested, cajoled our big four banks to go out in early 2020 when COVID hit and lend like crazy to pump our housing market up. They did that. And now they have much bigger mortgage books to make profits from. ANZ is the biggest and increased its mortgages by about $6 billion to just over $100 billion in the last two and a half years of COVID. At the same time, it's actually reduced its lending to business and reduced its staffing levels. So not only is it getting more money from net interest income, but also its cost base has fallen. So its efficiency and its net profit has risen. I include charts and details from ANZ's group results that were reported yesterday through the Australian Stock Exchange, including how the profitability of ANZ's New Zealand operations is the highest in the group, particularly relative to its risk weightings, i.e. ANZ has a very low risk set of loans in New Zealand because mortgage loans are very low risk. They're the last thing people default on. And that, along with the profit, means that not only are they getting relatively high profits and those profits are growing, but they are low risk profits. And ANZ is not the only one. We haven't got all the results in yet from the September quarter, but we do have a full set of results for the June quarter, which are detailed by KPMG and its financial institution uh, survey that comes out quarterly. And I've included some of the details of that in the email, showing that across the board, bank net interest margins have risen sharply over the last two and a half years, and that in effect, net profits have doubled over the last two and a half years to an annualized rate of uh, almost $8 billion a year. That is uh, um, a clear demonstration of who the winners of tightening monetary policy are, and actually who the winners, some of the winners, of the loosening of monetary policy. Remember, the Reserve Bank loosened monetary policy to create the wealth effect in 2020. Banks did their bidding, increased their mortgage lending, then interest rates rose. So not only were they making more profits per loan, they had bigger loans and more loans out there. So they were getting a double whammy effect. In fact, it's a triple whammy because many of them were able to reduce their costs as well. And uh, um, that's on top of the people, about a million, 1.1 million homeowners who saw the value of their uh, um, assets, their homes, the rental properties, their stocks rise uh, by about $550 billion to $2.35 trillion dollars uh, between the start of COVID and the end of June. It would have fallen a bit more since then because of falling house prices and a good couple of hundred billion of, of the gains since COVID have been wiped out in lower asset values, both shares and property. But over $500 billion has been retained. So we know who the winners were from the accidental overstimulation from the economy. They were asset owners, homeowners, and banks. We know who the losers were, those people who didn't own assets and who had precarious incomes, who weren't able to save, and who were hit by high inflation. 
So, what is the Reserve Bank doing and saying about this? Well, we got a big speech yesterday from Deputia Matua, Reserve Bank Governor Adrian Orr, about the situation the Reserve Bank finds itself in, along with many other central banks, and what it's doing about it. He's just returned from uh, big meetings at with the IMF, uh, which Grant Robertson also attended in Washington, and learned about what's happening around the world at the moment. Remember that the Reserve Bank started hiking before everyone else, but everyone else is catching up with a vengeance right now, and we have the fastest monetary policy tightening in global economic history since 1979 going on at the moment. And lots of debate about um, how far it can go, whether it will need to pivot, and whether it will create some extreme dramas in financial markets. We've already seen some of it, for example, in Britain. And that um, experience of going overseas has informed Adrian Orr as he comes back and gives a big speech, the details of which and a link to that full speech are in the email. Adrian Orr pointed out completely conventionally and in an orthodox way that there is a relationship, an inverse relationship, a trade-off between inflation and unemployment. For those who've followed their economics, this is called the Phillips curve and was actually invented by a New Zealand economist, Bill Phillips, in the 50s, 60s, and became very useful globally in the 70s and 80s as a way to describe what goes on in economies. Typically, as you heat up an economy through whatever means, inflation starts to rise and unemployment falls. Sort of obvious, really. But by the same token, if you want to reduce inflation, then you increase unemployment. And I think in the most bald way yet, Adrian Orr pointed this out, that central banks globally and in New Zealand are having to increase unemployment to try to reduce inflation. So they're going out of their way to reduce activity, to try to not quite get people sacked, but certainly not get them employed, and to increase the unemployment rate because they believe that the economy is running too hot that the level of employment is beyond, it's above the maximum sustainable level. It's a bit like if you've got a hot rod and you've pushed the accelerator down and you've redlined the car and you take your foot off the accelerator to avoid blowing the engine up. Well, that's what's happening at the moment. But the end result is, of course, that the speed of the engine reduces the engine uh, noise reduces, the smell of the burning fuel reduces. It's not quite as much fun. But of course, in monetary policy and economic terms, this all means we are seeing people lose their jobs, particularly those who are most vulnerable and who are in precarious income on low wages, paying rents. So in effect, the way that our Reserve Bank and Reserve Banks all around the world are dealing with their policy mistakes of 2020 and 2021 is to crunch down on economic growth, to reduce employment, to make people who are most vulnerable unemployed. In effect, again, it is reinforcing a distributional decision, or at least an effect, which means actions it takes reduces the wealth of those who are poorest, increases the wealth of those who are richest, and in the process, doubles up on the pain of what's happened over the last two and a half years.
Now this is uh, uh, not something the Reserve Bank is doing deliberately, I think, or in any sort of um, political way. This is just the way that um, independent central banking has developed over the last 30 years. By the way, started by New Zealand. The idea of creating a, an inflation targeting independent central bank at far beyond arm's length from politicians as finance ministers able to move interest rates to keep inflation low. We saw Don Brash do it in the late 80s and early 90s when unemployment got to almost 11% as he crunched down on the economy to get inflation under control. That really hurt. And we're still living with the effects of that very, very high unemployment and decisions that the government made separately to slash benefits and reduce investment in all sorts of areas. That legacy is still with us. The question now is, what could the Reserve Bank and the government do not to double up on the pain of 2020 and 21 by crunching down on the economy in 2022? Well, I've included a few suggestions in the email newsletter today. Ways in which the Reserve Bank could uh, be helped by the government to reduce inflation and ensure that the biggest losers this time around aren't necessarily those on low incomes. How about, for example, we impose a windfall profits tax on banks who've benefited from monetary policy by a government body, by an effective government guarantee by a government body, and by a policy decision by at least one government body to use a housing market to rescue the economy. Those banks are making at least $8 billion a year. They could probably spare 2 or $3 billion. You could use that money, for example, to do a temporary one-off reduction in GST from, let's say, 15% to 12.5%. Now, that's a relatively simple and easy and um, consistent thing to do uh, and would provide immediate benefit, not just in an inflationary sense, but in a... a a, a sense of reducing the costs of living for those people who have to spend 100% of their income, their disposable income, on goods and services. Meanwhile, the government could do all it can with its own fees and charges and taxes to reduce costs. One idea is to stop charging GST on top of rates for the government itself to pay rates, the councils at the moment they don't have to, and uh, by rebating uh, uh, GST receipts on building materials and other building services to councils with an agreement that they reduce their rates, in effect cutting costs and prices and contributing to a reduction in the inflation rate. Also, you've got to remember that one of the biggest sources of inflation right now in the last quarter was higher domestic airfares from a government-owned body. There are also three large power companies that are government controlled. And there are many things the government could do off its own bat to reduce inflation simply by cutting fees and charges and paying for it with a windfall profits levy on banks, which by the way, they already pay in Australia, their home country. So there we have it, a summary of what's gone on in the last couple of days around the big mistakes of 2020 and early 2021 by our central bank, which overinflated the economy, and the risk 
that it's going to punish the losers from 2020 and 2021 in the way it responds in 2022 and some suggestions on how it could be different. I'm Bernard Hickey. That was my daily email and email podcast for paying subscribers. And I've asked them if I can open it up. So if you're hearing this now, it's been opened up and you're very welcome to share it around. This is the sort of work I do, uh, public interest journalism on these issues around housing affordability, climate change in action and child poverty, paid for by paying subscribers, many of whom like it that I do the work to start with and then spread it around as widely as possible to help inform the debates we have about monetary, fiscal, housing, climate and child poverty policies. Ka kite anon. Have a great weekend.